there. It was more of a bleat than a cry, and it came from the door at the Royal Art Museum. A tall, thin figure was beckoning to the watchman who strolled over. Yes, sir, said Colon, touching his helmet. We've had a burglary, officer. Burglary, said Nobby. Oh, dear, sir, said Colon, putting a warning hand on the corporal's shoulders. Anything taken? Yes, I rather think that why it was a burglary, do you see? said the man. He had the attitude of a preoccupied chicken, but Fred Colon was impressed. You could barely understand the man, he was that posh. It was not so much speech as modulated yawning. I'm Sir Reynolds Stitched, the curator of fine art, and I was walking through the long gallery, and, oh dear, they took the rascal. The man looked at two blank faces. Methodia, rascal, he tried. The Battle of Coombe Valley. It is a priceless work of art. Colon hitched up his stomach. Ah, he said, that's serious. We'd better take a look at it. Er, I mean the locale where it was situated in. Yes, yes, of course, said Sir Reynold. Do come this way. I'm given to understand that the modern watch can learn a lot just by looking at the place where a thing was. Is that not so? Like that it's gone, said Nobby. Oh, yes, we're good at that. Yeah, quite so, said Sir Reynold. Do come this way. The watchman followed. They had been inside the museum before, of course. Most citizens had on days when no better entertainment presented itself. Under the governance of Lord Vetinari, it hosted fewer modern exhibitions these days, since his lordship held views. But a gentle stroll amongst the ancient tapestries and rather brown and dusty paintings was a pleasant way of spending an afternoon. Plus, it was always nice to look at the pictures of big pink women with no clothes on. Nobby was having a problem. Here, Sarge, what's she going on about? he whispered. It sounds like he's yawning all the time. What's a gallery? A gallery, Nobby. That's very high-class talking, that is. I can hardly understand him. Shoes, it's high-class, Nobby. It wouldn't be much good if people like you could understand, right? Good point, that, Nobby conceded. I hadn't thought of that. You found it missing this morning, sir, said Colon, as they trailed after the curator into a gallery still littered with ladders and dust sheets. Yes, indeed. So it was stolen last night, then? Sir Reynold hesitated. Yeah, not necessarily, I'm afraid. We have been refurbishing the long gallery. The picture was too big to move, of course, so we had it covered in heavy dust sheets for the past month. But when we took them down this morning, there was only the frame. Observe. The rascal occupied, or rather had occupied, an actual frame some ten feet high and fifty feet long, which, as such, was pretty close to being a work of art in its own right. It was still there, framing nothing but uneven, dusty plaster. I suppose some rich private collector has it now, Sir Reynold moaned. But how could he keep it a secret? The mural is one of the most recognisable paintings in the world. Every civilised person would spot it in an instant. What did it look like? said Fred Colon. Sir Reynold performed that downshift of assumptions that was the normal response to any conversation with Ank Morpork's finest. I can probably find you a copy, he said weakly. But the original is fifty feet long. Have you never seen it? Well, I remember being brought to see it when I was a kiddie, but it's a bit long, really. You can't really see it, anyway. I mean, by the time you get to the other end, you've forgotten what was happening back up the line, as it were. Alas, that is regrettably true, Sergeant, said Sir Reynold. And what is so vexing is that the whole point of this refurbishment was to build a special circular room to hold the rascal— his idea, you know, was that the viewer should be wholly encircled by the mural and feel right in the thick of the action, as it were. You would be there in Coombe Valley. He called it panoscopic art. 
Say what you like about the current interest, but the extra visitors would have made it possible to display the picture as we believe he intended it to be displayed. And now this. If you were going to move it, why didn't you just take it down and put it away nice and safe, sir? You mean roll it up? said Sir Reynold, horrified. That would cause such a lot of damage. Oh, the horror, no! We had a very careful exercise planned for next week, to be done with the utmost diligence. He shut. When I think of someone just hacking it out of the frame, I feel quite faint. Hey, this must be a clue, Sarge, said Nobby who had returned to his default activity of mooching about and poking at things to see if they were valuable. Look, someone dumped a load of stinking old rubbish here. He'd wandered across to a plinth, which did indeed appear to be piled high with rags. Don't touch that, please, said Sir Reynold, rushing over. That's... Don't talk to me about Mondays. It's Daniela Rina Pouter's most controversial whark. You didn't move anything, did you? he added nervously. It's literally priceless, and she's got a sharp tongue on her. It's only a load of old rubbish, Nobby protested, backing away. Art is greater than the sum of its mere mechanical components, Corporal, said the curator. Surely you would not say that Caravatti's three large pink women and one piece of gauze is just <clears throat> a lot of old pigment. What about this one, then? said Nobby, pointing to the adjacent plinth. It's just a big stake with a nail in it. Is this art, too? Freedom? If it was ever on the market, it would probably fetch thirty thousand dollars, said Sir Reynold. For a bit of wood with a nail in it, said Fred Colon. Who did it? After he viewed Don't Talk to Me About Mondays, Lord Veterinari graciously had Miss Powder nailed to the stake by her ear, said Stitch. However, she did manage to pull free during the afternoon. I bet she was mad, said Nobby. Not after she won several awards for it. I believe she's planning to nail herself to several other things. It could be a very exciting exhibition. Tell you what, then, sir said Nobby cheerfully. Why don't you leave the old big frame where it is and give it a new name, like Art Theft? No, said Sir Reynold coldly. That would be foolish. Shaking his head at the way of the world, Fred Colon walked right up to the wall so cruelly, or cruellier, denuded of its covering. The painting had been crudely cut from its frame. Sergeant Colon was not a high-speed thinker, but that point struck him as odd. If you've got a month to pinch a painting, why botch the job? Fred had a copper's view of humanity that differed in some respects to that of the curator. Never say that people wouldn't do something, no matter how strange it was. Probably there were some mad rich people out there who would buy the painting, even if it meant only ever viewing it in the privacy of their own mansion. People could be like that. In fact, knowing that this was their big secret probably gave them a lonely, tight little shiver inside. But the thieves had slashed the painting out, as if they didn't care about making a sale. There were several ragged inches all along the— Just a moment. Fred stood back. A clue. There it was, right there. He got a lovely, tight little shiver inside. This painting, he declared, this painting, this painting which isn't here, I mean, obviously, was stolen by a— Troll. "'My goodness, how can you tell?' said Sir Reynold. "'I'm very glad you asked me that question, sir,' said Fred Colon, who was. "'I have detected, you see, that the top of the circular muriel was cut really close to the frame,' he pointed. "'Now, your troll would easily be able to reach up with his knife, right, and cut along the edge of the frame at the top, and down a bit on each side, see?' But your average troll don't bend that well, so when it come to cutting along the bottom, right, he made a bit of a mess of the job and left it all jagged. Plus, only a troll could carry it away. A stair carpet's bad enough, and a rolled-up muriel would be a lot heavier than that. He beamed. Well done, sergeant, said the curator. Good thinking, Fred, said Nobby. Thank you, corporal.
said Fred Colon generously. Or it could have been a couple of dwarfs with a stepladder, Nobby went on cheerfully. The decorators have left a few behind there all over the place. Fred Colon sighed. You see, Nobby, he said, it's comments like that, made in front of a member of the public, that are the reason why I'm a sergeant and you ain't. If it was dwarfs, it would be neat all round, obviously. Is this place locked up at night, Mr. Serenold? Of course, not just locked, but barred. Old John is meticulous about it, and he lives in the attic so he can make this place like a fortress. This would be the caretaker, said Fred. We'll need to talk to him. Certainly you may, said Sir Reynold nervously. Now, I think we may have some details about the painting in our storeroom. I'll um, just go and uh, find them. He hurried off toward a small doorway. "'I wonder how they got it out,' said Nobby when they were alone. "'Who says they did?' said Fred Colon. "'Big place like this, full of attics and cellars and odd corners. Well, why not stash it away and wait a while? You get in as a customer one day, see? Aid it under a sheet, take out the mural in the night, hide it somewhere, then go out with the customers next day. Simple, eh?' he beamed at Nobby. You've got to outsmart the criminal main, see? Or they could have just smashed down a door and pushed off with the muriel in the middle of the night, said Nobby. Why mess about with a cunning plan when a simple one will do? Fred sighed. They can see this is going to be a complicated case, Nobby. You should ask Vimesy if we can have it, then, said Nobby. I mean, we already know the facts, right? Hovering in the air unsaid was... Where would you like to be in the next few days? Out there, where the axes and clubs are likely to be flying, or in here, searching all the attics and cellars very, very carefully? Think about it. And it wouldn't be cowardice, right? Cause a famous mural like this is bound to be part of our national heritage, right? Even if it is just a painting of a load of dwarfs and trolls having a scrap. I think I will do a proper report and suggest to Mr. Vames that maybe we should handle this one, said Fred Colon slowly. It needs the attention of mature officers. Do you know much about art, Nobby? If necessary, Sarge. Oh, come on, Nobby. What? Tawny says what she does is art, Sarge, and she wears more clothes than a lot of the women on the walls round here, so why be sniffy about it? Yeah, but... Fred Colon hesitated here. He knew in his heart that spinning upside down around a pole wearing a costume you could floss with definitely was not art. And being painted lying on a bed wearing nothing but a smile and a small bunch of grapes was good, solid art. But putting your finger on why this was the case was a bit tricky. No urns, he said at last. What urns? said Nobby. Nude women are only art if there's an urn in it, said Fred Colon. This sounded a bit weak even to him, so he added... Or a plinth. Both is best, of course. It's a secret saying, see, that they put in to say that it's art and it's okay to look at. What about a potted plant? That's okay if it's in an urn. What about if it's not got an urn or a plinth or a potted plant? said Nobby. Have you one in mind, Nobby? said Colon suspiciously. Yes. The goddess Anoya arising from the cutlery. Uh, Anoya is the Ankh-Morpork goddess of things that get stuck in drawers. They've got it here. It was painted by a bloke with three eyes in his name, which sounds pretty artistic to me. The number of eyes is important, Nobby, said Sergeant Colon gravely. But in these situations, you have to ask yourself, where's the cherub? If there's a little fat pink kid holding a mirror or a fan or similar, then it's still OK, even if he's grinning. Obviously, you can't get urns everywhere. All right, but supposing... Nobby began. The distant door opened, and Sir Reynold came hurrying across the marble floor with a book under his arm. Um, I'm afraid there's no copy of the painting, he said. Clearly, a copy that did it justice would be quite hard to make. But uh, this rather sensationalist treatise has many detailed sketches, at least. These days, every visitor seems to have a copy, of course. Did you know that more than 2,490 individual dwarfs and trolls can be identified by armour or body markings in the original picture? It drove Rascal quite mad, poor fellow. 
It took him sixteen years to complete. That's nothing, said Nobby cheerfully. Fred here hasn't finished painting his kitchen yet, and he started twenty years ago. Thank you for that, Nobby, said Colon coldly. He took the book from the curator. The title was The Coombe Valley Codex. Mad how, he said. Well, he neglected his other work, you see. He was constantly moving his lodgings because he couldn't pay the rent, and he had to drag that huge canvas with him. Imagine! He had to beg for paints in the streets, which took up a lot of his time, since not many people have a tube of burnt umber on them. He said it talked to him, too. You'll find it all in there, rather dramatized, I fear. The painting talked to him? Sir Reynold made a face. We believe that's what he meant. We don't really know. He did not have many friends. He was convinced that if he went to sleep at night, he would turn into a chicken. He'd leave little notes for himself, saying, You are not a chicken, although sometimes he thought he was lying. The general belief is that he concentrated so much on the painting that it gave him some kind of brain fever. Toward the end, he was sure he was losing his mind. He said he could hear the battle. How do you know that, sir? said Fred Colon. You said he didn't have any friends. Ah, the incisive intellect of the policeman, said Sir Reynold, smiling. He left notes to himself, sergeant, all the time. When his last landlady entered his room, she found many hundreds of them stuffed in old chicken-feed sacks. Fortunately, she couldn't read, and since she'd fixed in her mind the idea that the lodger was some sort of genius, and therefore might have something she could sell, she called in a neighbour, a Miss Adelina Happily, who painted watercolours, and Miss Happily called in a friend who framed pictures, who hurriedly summoned Ephraim Duster, the noted landscape artist. Scholars have puzzled over the notes ever since, seeking some insight into the poor man's tortured mind. They are not in order, you see. Some are very odd. Order, then, you are not a chicken, said Fred. Yes, said Sir Reynold. No, there is stuff about voices, omens, ghosts. He also wrote his journal on random pieces of paper, you know, and never gave any indication as to the date or where he was staying, in case the chicken found him. And he used very guarded language, because he didn't want the chicken to find out. Sorry, I thought you said he thought he was the chick. Colon began. Who can fathom the thought processes of the sadly disturbed sergeant, said Sir Reynold wearily. Ah, uh, and does the painting talk, said Nobby Nobs. Stranger things have happened, right? <laughs> no, said Sir Reynold. At least not in my time. Ever since that book was reprinted, there's been a guard in here during visiting hours, and he says it has never uttered a word. Certainly, it has always fascinated people, and there have always been stories about hidden treasure there. That is why the book has been republished. People love a mystery, don't they? Not us, said Fred Colon. I don't even know what a Mr. Rear is, said Nobby, leafing through the codex. Here, I heard about this book. My friend Dave, who runs the stamp shop, says there's this story about a dwarf, right, who turned up in this town near Coombe Valley more than two weeks after the battle, and he was all injured, cos he'd been ambushed by trolls and starving, right, and no one knew much dwarfish, but it was like he wanted them to follow him. And he kept saying this word over and over again, which turned out, right, to be dwarfish for treasure, right? Only only when they followed him back to the valley, right, he died on the way, and they never found out nothing. And then this artist bloke found some thing in Coombe Valley, and, and hid the place where he'd found it in this painting, but it drove him bananas like it was haunted, Dave said. He said the government hushed it up. Yeah, but your mate Dave says the government always hushes things up, Nobby, said Fred. Well, they do. "'Except he always gets to hear about them, and he never gets hushed up,' said Fred. "'I know you like to point the finger of scoff, Sarge, but there's a lot goes on that we don't know about.' "'Like what, exactly?' Colon retorted. "'Name me one thing that's going on that you don't know about.' "'There, you can't, can you?' 
Sir Reynold cleared his throat. That is certainly one of the theories, he said, speaking carefully, as people tended to after hearing the colon knobs brains trust crossing purposes. Regrettably, Methodia Rascal's notes support just about any theory one may prefer. The current popularity of the painting is, I suspect, because the book does indeed revisit the old story, that there's some huge secret hidden in the painting. Oh, said Fred Colon, poking up, what kind of secret? I have no idea. The landscape was painted in great detail. A pointer to a secret cave, perhaps. Something about the positioning of some of the combatants. There are all kinds of theories. Rather strange people come along with tape measures and rather worryingly intent expressions, but I don't think they ever find anything. Perhaps one of them pinched it, Nobby suggested. I doubt it. They tend to be rather furtive individuals who bring sandwiches and a flask and stay here all day. The sort of people who love anagrams and secret signs and have little theories and pimples. Probably quite harmless, except to one another. Besides, why steal it? We like people to take an interest in it. I don't think that kind of person would want to take it home, because it would be too large to fit under the bed. Did you know that Rascal wrote that sometimes in the night he heard screams? The noise of battle one is forced to assume. So sad. Not something you'd want over the fireplace, then, said Fred Colon. Precisely, Sergeant, even if it were possible to have a fireplace fifty feet long. Thank you, sir. One other thing, though. How many doors are there in this place? Three, said Sir Reynold promptly, but two are always locked. But if the troll, or the dwarfs, said Nobby, or, as my junior colleague points out, the dwarfs, trade to get it out. Gargoyles, said Sir Reynold proudly, to watch the main door constantly from the building opposite, and there's one each on the other doors, and there are staff on during the day, of course. This may sound a silly question, sir, but have you looked everywhere? I've had the staff searching all morning, Sergeant. It would be a very big and very heavy roll. This place is full of odd corners, but it would be very obvious. Colon saluted. Thank you, sir. We'll just have a look around if you don't mind. Yeah, for urns, said Nobby Nobs. Vimes eased himself into his chair and looked at the damned vampire. She could have passed for sixteen. It was certainly hard to believe that she was not a lot younger than Vimes. She had short hair, which Vimes had never seen on a vampire before, and looked, if not like a boy, then like a girl who wouldn't mind passing for one. Uh, sorry about the uh, remark, Dan, there, he said. It's not been a good week, and it's getting worse by the hour. You don't have to be frightened, said Sally. If it's any help, I don't like this any more than you do. I am not frightened, said Vimes sharply. Sorry, Mr. Vimes. You smell frightened. Not badly, Sally added, but just a bit. And your heart is beating faster. I'm sorry if I have offended you. I was just trying to put you at your ease. Vimes leaned back. Don't try to put me at my ease, Miss Von Humperding, he said. It makes me nervous when people do that. It's not as though I have any ease to be put at. And do not comment on my smell either, thank you. Oh, and it's Commander Vimes, or Sir, understand, not Mr. Vimes. And I would prefer to be called Sally, said the vampire. They looked at each other, both aware that this was not going well, both uncertain that they could make it go any better. So, Sally, you want to be a copper? said Vimes. A policeman, yes. Any history of policing in your family? said Vimes. It was a standard opening question. It always helped if they'd inherited some idea about coppering. No, just the throat biting, said Sally. There was another pause. Vimes sighed. Look, I just want to know one thing, he said. Did John not a vampire at all, Smith, and Doreen Winkings put you up to this? No, said Sally. I approached them. And if it's any help to you, I didn't think there'd be all this fuss either. Vimes looked surprised. 
But you applied to join, he said. Yes, but I don't see why there has to be all this interest. Don't blame me, that was your League of Temperance. Really? Your Lord Veterinari was quoted in the newspaper, said Sally. All that stuff about the lack of species discrimination being in the finest traditions of the watch. Ha! said Fimes. Well, it's true that a copper's a copper as far as I'm concerned, but the fine traditions of the watch, Miss von Humperding, largely consist of finding somewhere out of the rain, mumping for free beer round the back of pubs, and always keeping two notebooks. You don't want me, then, said Sally. I thought you needed all the recruits you could get. Look, I'm probably stronger than anyone on your payroll who isn't a troll. I'm quite clever, I don't mind hard work, and I've got excellent night vision. I can be useful. I want to be useful. Can you turn into a bat? She looked shocked. What? What kind of a question is that to ask me? Probably among the less tricky ones, said Vimes. Besides, it might be useful. Can you? No. Ah, oh, well, never mind. I can turn into a lot of bats, said Sally. One bat is hard to do, because you have to deal with changes in body mass, and you can't do that if you've been reformed for a while. Anyway, it gives me a headache. What was your last job? I didn't have one. I was a musician. Vimes brightened up. Really? Some of the lads have been talking about setting up a watch band. Could they use a cello? Probably not. Vimes drummed his fingers on the desk. Well, she hadn't gone for his throat yet, had she? That was a problem, of course. Vampires were fine, right up until the point where suddenly they weren't. But in truth, right now, he knew she'd got it right. He needed anyone who could stand upright and finish a sentence. This damn business was taking its toll. He needed men out there all the time just to keep the lid on things. Oh, right now it was just scuffles and stone-throwing and breaking windows and running away, but all that stuff added up, like snowflakes on an avalanche slope. People needed to see coppers at a time like this. They gave the illusion that the whole world hadn't gone insane. And the Temperance League was pretty good and very supportive of its members. It was in the interests of all members that no one found themselves standing in a strange bedroom with an embarrassingly full feeling. They'd be watching her. "'We've got no room for passengers in the watch,' he said. "'We're too pressed right now to give you any more than what is laughingly known as on-the-job training, but you'll be on the streets from day one. Er, uh, how are you with the daylight thing?' "'I'm fine with long sleeves and a wide brim. I carry the kit, anyway.' Vimes nodded. A small dustpan and brush, a vial of animal blood, and a small card saying, "'Help! I have crumbled and I can't get up. Please sweep me into a heap and crush vial.' I am a black ribboner and will not harm you, thanking you in advance. His fingers rattled on the desktop again. She returned his stare. All right, you're in, Vimes said at last. On probation to start with. Everyone starts that way. Sort out the paperwork with Sergeant Littlebottom downstairs. Report to Sergeant Detritus for your gear and orientation lecture. And try not to laugh. And now you've got what you want and we're not being official. Tell me why. Pardon? said Sally. A vampire wanting to be a copper, said Vimes, leaning back in his chair. I can't quite make that fit, Sally. I thought it would be an interesting job in the fresh air which would offer opportunities to help people, Commander Vimes. Hmm, said Vimes. If you can say that without smiling, you might make a copper after all. Welcome to the job, Lance Constable. I hope you have... The door slammed. Captain Carrot took two steps into the room, saw Sally, and hesitated. Lance Constable von Humperding has just joined us, Captain, said Vimes. Eh, fine. Hello, miss, said Carrot quickly. Sir, someone's killed Ham Crusher. Ank Morpork's finest strolled back down toward the yard. What I do, said Nobby, is cut the painting up into little bits, like, oh, a few inches across. That's diamonds, Nobby. It's how you get rid of stolen diamonds. All right, then. How about this one? You cut the mural up into bits the size of ordinary paintings, OK? Then you paint a painting on the other side of each one and put them in frames and leave them around the place. No one will notice extra paintings, right? And then you go and pinch them when the fuss has died down. And how do you get them out, Nobby? Well, first you get some glue and a really long stick and... Fred Colon shook his head. Can't see it happening, Nobby. All right, then. 
you get some paint that's the same colour as the walls, and you glue the painting to the wall somewhere it'll fit, and you paint over it with your wall paint so it looks just like the wall. Got a convenient bit of wall in main, then? How about inside the frame that's there already, Sarge? Bloody hell, Nobby, that's clever, said Fred, stopping dead. Said, Thank you, Sarge. That means a lot coming from you. But you've still got to get it out, Nobby. Remember all those dust sheets, Sarge? I bet in a few weeks' time a couple of blokes in overalls will be able to walk out of the place with a big white roll under their arms, and no one would think twice about it, cos they'd like be thinking a muriel had been pinched weeks before. There were a few moments of silence before Sergeant Colon said, in a hushed voice, That's a very dangerous mind you got there, Nobby. Very dangerous indeed. How'd you get the new paint off, though? Oh, that's easy, said Nobby, and I know where to get some painter's aprons, too. Nobby, said Fred, shocked. All right, Sarge, you can't blame a man for dreaming, though. This could be a feather in our caps, Nobby, and we could do with one now. You'll bought a plane up again, Sarge. You may laugh, Nobby, but you've only got to look around, said Fred gloomily. It's just gang fates now, but it's going to get worse, you mark my words. All this scrapping over something that happened thousands of years ago. I don't know why they don't get back to where they came from if they want to do that. Most of them come from here now, observed Nobby. Fred grunted his disdain for a mere fact of geography. War, Nobby. Huh. What is it good for? he said. Dunno, Sarge. Freeing slaves, maybe? Absolute. Well, okay. Defending yourself against a totalitarian aggressor? All right, I'll grant you that, but saving civilization from a horde of it doesn't do any good in the long run, is what I'm saying, Nobby, if you'd listen for five seconds together, said Fred Colon sharply. Yeah, but in the long run, what does, Sarge? Say that again, paying attention to every word, will you? said Vimes. He's dead, sir. Hamcrusher is dead. The dwarfs are sure of it. Vimes stared at his captain. Then he glanced at Sally and said, I gave you an order, Lance Constable von Humperding. Go and get joined up. When the girl had hurried out, he said, I hope you're sure about it as well, Captain. It's spreading through the dwarfs like, like, Carrot began. Alcohol, Vimes suggested. Very fast, anyway, Carrot conceded. Last night, they say, a troll got into his place in Treacle Street and beat him to death. I heard some of the lads talking about it. Carrot, wouldn't we know if something like that had happened? said Vimes. But in theatre of his mind, Angua and Fred Colon uttered their Cassandraic warnings again. The dwarfs knew something. The dwarfs were worried. Don't we, sir? said Carrot. I mean, I've just told you. Why aren't his people shouting it in the streets? Political assassination and all that sort of thing. Shouldn't they be screaming bloody murder? Who told you this? Constable Ironbender and Corporal Ringfounder, sir. They're steady, lads. Ringfounder's up for sergeant soon. Uh, there was something else, sir. I did ask them why we hadn't heard officially, and Ironbender said... You won't like this, sir. He said the watch wasn't to be told. Carrot watched Vimes carefully. It was hard to see the change of expression on the commander's face, but certain small muscles set firmly. On whose orders? said Vimes. Someone called Ardent, apparently. He's Hamcrusher's interpreter, I suppose you could say. He says it's dwarf business. But this is Ank Morpork, Captain, and murder is murder. Yes, sir. And we are the City Watch, Vimes went on. It says so on the door. Actually, it mostly says copers are bar studs on the door at the moment, but I've got someone scrubbing it off, said Carrot. And I... That means if anyone gets murdered, we're responsible said Vimes. "'I know what you mean, sir,' said Carrot carefully. "'Does Vetinari know? I can't imagine that he doesn't. Me neither.' Vimes thought for a moment. "'What about the times? There's plenty of dwarfs work in there. I'd be surprised if they passed it on to humans, sir. I only got to hear about it because I'm a dwarf, and Einbender really wants to make sergeant, and, frankly, I overheard them. But I doubt if the printing dwarfs would mention it to the editor.' Are you telling me, Captain, that dwarfs in the watch would keep a murder secret? Carrot looked shocked. Oh, no, sir. Good. They just keep it secret from humans. 
Sorry, sir. The important thing is not to shout at this point, Vimes told himself. Do not, what do they call it, go postal. Treat this as a learning exercise. Find out why the world is not as you thought it was. Assemble the facts, digest the information, consider the implications. Then go postal, but with precision. Dwarfs have always been law-abiding citizens, Captain, he said. They even pay their taxes. Suddenly they think it's okay not to report a possible murder. Carrot could see the steely glint in Vimes's eyes. Well, the fact is, he began, yes. You see, Ham Crusher was a deep-down dwarf, sir. I mean, really deep down. Hates coming to the surface. They say he lived at sub-sub-basement level. I know all that, so. So how far down does our jurisdiction go, sir? said Carrot. What? As far down as we like. Uh, does it say that anywhere, sir? Most of the dwarfs here are from Copperhead and Clamados and Uberwald, said Carrot. Those places have surface laws and underground laws. I know it's not the same here, but, well, it's how they see the world. And, of course, Hamcrush's dwarfs are all deep-downers, and you know how ordinary dwarfs think about them? They come bloody close to worshipping them, Vimes thought, pinching the bridge of his nose and shutting his eyes. It just gets worse and worse. All right, he said. But this is Ankh-Morpork, and we have our own laws. There can be no harm in us just checking up on the health of Brother Hamcrusher, can there? We can knock on the door, can't we? Say we've got good reason to ask. I know it's only a rumour, but if enough people believe a rumour like that, we will not be able to keep a lid on it. Good idea, sir. Go into Langua, I want her along. And, oh, Haddock. And Ringfander, maybe. You come too, of course. Er, uh, not a good idea, sir. I happen to know most deep-downers are nervous about me. They believe I'm too human to be a dwarf. Really? Six feet, three inches in his stockinged feet, thought Vimes, adopted and raised by dwarfs in a little dwarf mine in the mountains. His dwarfish name is Kazad-Bat, which means head-banger. He coughed. Why on earth should they think that, I wonder, he said. All right, I know I'm technically human, sir, but size has traditionally never been a dwarfish definition of a dwarf. Hamcrush's group aren't happy about me, though. Sorry to hear it. I'll take Cheery, then. Are you mad, sir? You know what they think about female dwarfs who actually admit it? All right, then. I'll take Sergeant Detritus. They'll believe in him all right, won't they? Could be said to be a bit provocative, sir, Carrot began doubtfully. Detritus is an Ankh-Morpork copper captain, just like you and me, said Vimes. I suppose I'm acceptable, am I? Yes, sir, of course. I think you worry them, though. I do? Oh, Vimes hesitated. Well, that's good. And Detritus is an officer of the law. We've still got some law here, and as far as I'm concerned, it goes deep, all the way down. Bloody stupid thing to say, Vimes thought five minutes later, as he walked through the streets at the head of the little squad. He cursed himself for saying it. Coppers stayed alive by trickery. That's how it worked. You had your watch houses with the big blue lights outside, and you made certain there were always burly watchmen visible in the big public places, and you swanked around like you owned the place. But you didn't own it. It was all smoke and mirrors. You magicked a little policeman into everyone's head. You relied on people giving in, knowing the rules. But in truth, a hundred well-armed people could wipe out the watch if they knew what they were doing. Once some madman finds out that a copper, taken unawares, dies just like anyone else, the spell is broken. Ham-crushers dwarfs don't believe in the city watch. That could turn out to be a problem. Maybe bringing a troll along was provocative, but Detritus was a citizen, gods damn it, just like everyone else. If you daddle-dam, daddle-dam, daddle-dam. Ah, yes, no matter how bad things were, there was always room for them to get just that little bit worse. Vimes pulled the smart brown box out of his pocket and flipped it open. The pointy-eared face of a small green imp stared up at him with that wistful, hopeless smile which, in its various incarnations, he'd come to know and dread. "'Good morning, insert name here. I am the disorganiser Mark V, the Gooseberry TM.' "'How may I?' it began, speaking fast in order to get as much said as possible before the inevitable interruption. "'I swear I switched you off,' said Vimes. "'You threatened me with a hammer,' said the imp accusingly, and rattled the tiny bars. 
"'He threatens state-of-the-craft technomancy with a hammer, everybody!' it shouted. "'He doesn't even fill in the registration card. That's why I have to call him insertnate—' "'I thought you got rid of that thing, sir,' said Angua, as Vimes snapped the lid shut. "'I thought it had had an uh, accident.' "'Ha!' said a muffled voice from the box. "'Sibyl always gets me a new one,' said Vimes, making a face. "'A better one. But I know this one was turned off.' the box's lid thrust upwards. "'I wake up for alarms!' the imp shrieked. Ten colon, forty-five colon, sit for damned portrait!' Vimes groaned. The portrait with Sir Joshua. He'd get into trouble for this. He'd already missed two sittings. But this dwarf thing was important. "'I won't be able to make it,' he mumbled. "'Then would you like to engage the handy-to-use Blue Nose TM Integrated Messenger Service?' "'What does that do?' said Vimes, with deep suspicion. The succession of disorganisers he had owned had proved quite successful at very nearly sorting out all the problems that stemmed from owning them in the first place. "'Ah, uh, basically, it means me running with a message to the nearest Clax Tower really fast,' said the imp, hopefully. "'And do you come back?' said Vimes, hope also rising. "'Absolutely!' "'Thank you, no,' said Vimes. "'How about a game of Splong, TM, specially devised for the Mark V?' pleaded the imp. I have the bats right here, no? Perhaps you would prefer the ever-popular Guess My Weight in Pigs. Or I could whistle one of your favourite tunes. My I Hum TM function enables me to remember up to 1,500 of your all-time. You could try learning to use it, sir, said Angua, as Vimes once again shut the lid on the protesting voice. Did use one, said Vimes. Yep, as a doorstop, rumbled Detritus behind him. "'I'm just not at home with technomancy, all right,' said Vimes. "'End of discussion. Haddock, nip along to Moon Pond Lane, will you? Present my apologies to Lady Sybil, who will be at Sir Joshua's studio there. Tell her I'm very sorry, but this has come up, and it needs careful handling.' "'Well, it does,' he thought as they headed onwards. "'It probably needs more careful handling than I'm going to give it. Well, to hell with that. It comes to something if you have to tread carefully even to find out if there's been a murder.' Treacle Street was just the kind of area the dwarfs colonised. On the edge of the less pleasant parts of town, but not all the way there. You tended to notice the dwarf outposts. A patchwork of windows testified to a two-storey house having been turned into a three-storey house while remaining exactly the same height. There was an excess of small ponies pulling small carts. And, of course, all the really short people wearing beards and helmets was a definite clue. Dwarfs dug down, too. It was a dwarf thing. Up here, far from the river, they could probably get to sub-basement level without being up to their necks in water. There were a lot of them out and about this morning. They weren't particularly angry, insofar as Vimes could tell, when the available area of expression between eyebrows and moustache was a few square inches, but it wasn't usual to see dwarfs just standing around. They tended to be somewhere, working hard, usually for one another. No, they weren't angry, but they were worried. You didn't need to see faces to sense that. Dwarfs, as a whole, weren't happy about newspapers, regarding such news as a lover of fine grapes would regard raisins. They got their news from other dwarfs, to ensure that it was new and fresh and full of personality, and no doubt it grew all kinds of extras in the telling. This crowd was waiting uncertainly for news that it was going to become a riot. For now it parted to let them through. The presence of detritus caused a wake of muttering, which the troll cleverly decided not to hear. Feel that, said Angua, as they walked up the street, through your feet. I don't have your senses, Sergeant, said Vimes. It's a constant thud, thud underground, said Angua. I can feel the street shaking. I think it's a pump. Pumping out more cellars, maybe, said Vimes. Sounded like a big undertaking. How far down could they go, he wondered. Ank Morpork is mostly built on Ank Morpork, after all. There's been a city here since forever. It wasn't just a random crowd when you looked closely. It was also a queue along one side of the street, moving very slowly toward a side door. They were waiting to see the grags. Please come and say the death words over my father. Please advise me on the sale of my shop. Please guide me in my business. I'm a long way from the bones of my grandfather's. Please help me stay a dwarf. This was not the time to be Dukza. Strictly speaking, most Ankh-Morpork dwarfs were Dukza. It meant something like, not really a dwarf. 
They didn't live deep underground and only come out at night. They didn't mind metal. They let their daughters show at least a few indications of femininity. They tended to be a little slipshod when it came to some of the ceremonies. But the whiff of Coombe Valley was in the air, and this was no time to be mostly a dwarf. So you paid attention to the grags. They kept you on the straight seam. And until now that had been fine by Vimes. Up until now, though, the grags in the city had stopped short of advocating murder. He liked dwarfs. They made reliable officers, and dwarfs tended to be naturally law-abiding, at least in the absence of alcohol. But they were all watching him. He could feel the pressure of their gaze. Standing around watching people was, of course, Ankh-Morpork's leading industry. The place was a net exporter of penetrating stairs. But these were the wrong kind— the street felt not exactly hostile, but alien. And yet it was an Ankh-Morpork street. How could he be a stranger here? Maybe I shouldn't have brought a troll, he thought. Where does that lead? Pick your own copper from a chart? Two dwarfs were on guard outside Hamcrush's house. They were more heavily armed than the average dwarf, insofar as that was possible, but it was probably the black leather sashes they wore that were doing the trick of keeping the mood subdued. These declared to all who recognised them that they were working for deep-down dwarfs, and, as such, partook a little of the magic, manner, awe, or fear that they engendered in the average backsliding dwarf. They started to give Vimes the look of all guards everywhere, which, in summary, is this. The default position is that you're dead. Only my patience stands in the way. But Vimes was ready for it. Any five hells you care to name knew that he'd used it himself often enough. He countered with the aloof expression of someone who didn't notice guards. Commander Vimes, City Watch, he said, holding up his badge. I need to see Grag Amcrusher immediately. He's not seeing anyone, said one of the guards. Oh, so he is dead then, said Vimes. He felt the answer. He didn't even have to see Angua's little nod. The dwarfs had been dreading the question and were sweating. To their shock and horror, and also somewhat to his own surprise, he sat down on the steps between them and pulled a packet of cheap cigars out of his pocket. "'I won't offer one to you, lads, because I know that you aren't allowed to smoke on duty,' he said convivially. "'I don't allow my boys to do it. The only reason I can get away with it is that there's no one to tell me off. Ha-ha-ha!' <laughs> he blew a stream of blue smoke. "'Now, I am, as you know, head of the city watch, yes?' The two dwarfs, staring straight ahead, nodded imperceptibly. "'Good!' said Vimes. And that means you, that's both of you, are impeding me in the execution of my duty. That gives me, oh, a whole range of options. The one I'm thinking of right now is summoning Constable Dorfel. He's a golem. Nothing impedes him in the execution of his duty, believe me. You'll be picking bits of that door off the floor for weeks, and I wouldn't stand in his way if I was you. Oh, and it'd be lawful which means that if anyone puts up a fight, it gets really interesting. Look, I'm only telling you this because I've done my share of guarding over the years, and there are times when looking tough works, and there are times, and this, I suggest, is one of them, when going and asking the people inside what you should do next is a very good career move. Can't leave our post, said one of the dwarfs. Don't worry about that, said Vime, standing. I'll stand guard for you. You can't do that. Vimes bent down to the dwarf's ear. "'I am Commander of the Watch,' he hissed, no longer Mr. Friendly. He pointed at the cobblestones. "'This is my street. I can stand where I like. You are standing on my street. It's the public highway. That means that there are about a dozen things I could arrest you for right now.' That would cause trouble, right enough, but you would be bang in the middle of it. My advice to you, one guard to another, is to hop off smartly and speak to someone higher... further up the ladder, OK? He saw worried eyes peering out from between the rampant eyebrows and the luxuriant moustache, spotted the tiny little tails he'd come to recognise, and added, Off you go, ma'am. The dwarf hammered on the door. The hatch slid back. Whispering transpired. The door opened. The dwarf hurried in. The door closed. Vimes turned, took up station beside it, and stood to attention slightly more theatrically than necessary. There were one or two outbreaks of laughter. 
Dwarfs they may be, but in Ankh-Morpork people always wanted to see what would happen next. The remaining guard hissed, We're not allowed to smoke on duty. Oops, sorry, said Vimes, and removed the cigar, tucking it behind his ear for later. This got a few more chuckles. Let them laugh, said Vimes to himself. At least they're not throwing things. The sun shone down. The crowd stood still. Sergeant Angua stared at the sky, her face carefully blank. Detritus had settled into the absolute rock-like stillness of a troll with nothing to do right now. Only Ringfounder looked uneasy. This probably was not a good time and place to be a dwarf with a badge, Vimes thought. But why? All we've been doing in the last couple of weeks is trying to stop two bunches of idiots from killing one another. And now this. This morning was going to cost him an earful, he thought, although Sybil never shouted when she told him off. She just spoke sadly, which was a lot worse. The bloody family portrait, that was the trouble. It seemed to involve an awful lot of sittings, but it was a tradition in Sybil's family, and that was that. It was more or less the same portrait every generation, the happy family group against a panorama of their rolling acres. Vimes had no rolling acres, only aching feet, but as the inheritor of the Ramkin wealth, he was, he'd learned, also the owner of Crundles, a huge stately home out in the country. He'd never even seen it yet. Vimes didn't mind the countryside if it stayed put and didn't attack, but he liked pavement under his feet and didn't much care for being pictured as some kind of squire. So far his excuses for avoiding the interminable sittings had been reasonable, but it was a close-run thing. More time passed. Some of the dwarfs in the crowd wandered off. Vimes didn't move, not even when he heard the hatch in the door open for a moment and then slide back. They were trying to wait him out. Cha-cha-rum-tittle-tittle-tittle-tittle-chum-chum. Without looking down, maintaining the stolid thousand-mile stare of a guard, Vimes pulled the disorganiser out of his pocket and raised it to his lips. I know you were turned off, he grunted. Pop up for alarms, remember, said the imp. How do I stop you doing that? The correct form of words is in the manual, insert name here, said the imp primly. Where is the manual? You threw it away, said the imp, full of reproach. You always do. That's why you never use the right commands, and that is why I did not go away and stick my head up a duck's bottom yesterday. You have an appointment to see Lord Vetinari in half an hour. I will be busy, muttered Vimes. Would you like me to remind you again in ten minutes? Tell me, what part of stick your head up a duck's bottom didn't you understand? Vimes replied and plunged the thing back into his pocket. So, it had been half an hour. Half an hour was enough. This was going to be drastic, but he'd seen the looks the dwarfs were giving detritus. Rumour was an evil poison. As he stepped forward, ready to go and summon Dorful and all the problems that invading this place would entail, the door opened behind him. Commander Vimes, you may come in. There was a dwarf in the doorway. Vimes could just make out his shape in the gloom and for the first time he noticed the symbol chalked on the wall over the door, a circle with a horizontal line through it. "'Sergeant Angua will accompany me,' he said. The sign struck Vimes as vaguely unsettling. It seemed to be a stamp of ownership that was rather more emphatic than, for example, a little plaque saying Mon Repos. "'The troll will stay outside,' said the figure flatly. Sergeant Detritus will stand guard along with Corporal Ringfounder, said Vimes. This restatement of fact seemed to pass muster, suggesting that the dwarf probably knew a lot about iron, but nothing about irony. The door opened further, and Vimes stepped inside. The hall was bare, except for a few stacked boxes, and the air smelled of, what, stale food, old empty houses, sealed-up rooms. Attics. The whole house is an attic, Vimes thought. The thud, thud from below was really noticeable here. It was like a heartbeat. This way, if you please, said the dwarf, and ushered Vimes and Angua into a side room. Again, the only furnishings were more wooden boxes, and here and there some well-worn shovels. We do not often entertain. Please be patient, said the dwarf, and backed out. The key clicked on the lock. Vimes sat down on a box. Polite, said Angua. 
Vimes put one hand to his ear and jerked a thumb toward the damp, stained plaster. She nodded, but mouthed the word corpse and pointed downwards. Sure, said Vimes. Angua tapped her nose. Yes, you couldn't argue with a werewolf's nose. Vimes leaned back against a bigger box. It was comfort itself to a man who'd learned to sleep leaning against any available wall. The plaster on the opposite wall was crumbling, green with damp and hung with dusty old spiderwebs. Someone, though, had scratched a symbol in it so deeply that bits of the plaster had fallen out. It was another circle, this time with two diagonal lines slashed through it. Some passion there. Not what you'd expect around dwarfs. You are taking this very well, sir, said Angua. You must know this is deliberate discourtesy. Being rude isn't against the law, sergeant. Vimes pulled his helmet over his eyes and settled down. The little devils play silly buggers with me, will they? Try to wind me up, will they? Don't tell the watch, eh? There are no no-go areas in this city. I'll see to it they find that out. Oh, yes. There were more and more of deep downers in the city these days, although you very seldom saw them outside the dwarf areas. Even there you didn't see deep downers themselves. You just saw their dusty black sedan chairs being muscled through the crowds by four other dwarfs. There were no windows. There was nothing outside that a deep downer could possibly want to see. The city dwarfs regarded them with awe, respect, and, it had to be said, a certain amount of embarrassment, like some honoured but slightly loopy relative. Because somewhere in the head of every city dwarf there was a little voice that said, You should live in a mine. You should be in the mountains. You shouldn't walk under open skies. You should be a real dwarf. In other words, you shouldn't really be working in your uncle's pigment and dye factory in Dolly Sisters. However, since you were, you could at least try to think like a proper dwarf. And part of that meant being guided by the deep downers, the dwarfs' dwarfs, who lived in caves miles below the surface and never saw the sun. Somewhere down there in the dark was true dwarfishness. They had the knowing of it. They could guide you. Vimes had no problem with that at all. It made as much sense as what most humans believed, and most dwarfs were model citizens, even at two-thirds scale. But deciding that murder could be kept in the family, thought Vimes, not on my watch. After ten minutes, the door was unlocked and another dwarf stepped inside. He was dressed as what Vimes thought of as standard city dwarf, which meant basic helmet, leather, chainmail, and battle-axe-stroke mining pick, but hold the spiky club. He also had a black sash. He looked flustered. Commander Vimes, what can I say? I do apologise the way you've been treated. I bet you do. Aloud, Vimes said, And who are you? Apologies again. I am Helm Clever, and I am the... Uh, the nearest word is perhaps Daylight Face. I do those things that have to be done above ground. Do come into my office, please. He trotted off, leaving them to follow him. The office was downstairs, in the stone-walled basement. It looked quite cosy. Crates and sacks were piled up against one wall. There wasn't much food in deep caves, after all. The simple life for dwarfs down below happened because of quite complex lives for a lot of dwarfs above. Helmclever looked like little more than a servant, making sure that his masters got fed, although he might have thought the job was rather grander than that. A curtain in the corner probably concealed a bed. Dwarfs did not go in for dainty living. A desk was covered in paperwork. Beside it, on a small table, was an octagonal board covered in little playing pieces. Vimes sighed. He hated games. They made the world look too simple. "'Oh, do you play at all, Commander?' said Helmclever, with the hungry look of a true enthusiast. Vimes knew the type, too. "'Show polite interest, and you'll be there all night.' "'Lord Fedinari does. It's never interested me,' said Vimes." Vimes had never got on with any game much more complex than darts. Chess, in particular, had always annoyed him. It was the dumb way the pawns went off and slaughtered their fellow pawns while the kings lounged about doing nothing that always got to him. If only the pawns united, maybe talked the rooks around, the whole board could have been a republic in a dozen moves. Elmclever's not a common dwarf name. You're not related to the Helmclevers in Tallow Lane, are you? He'd meant it as no more than a bit of non-controversial ice-breaking, but he might as well have cursed. Helmclever looked down and mumbled, uh, uh, yes, but to a, a, a grag, even a novice, all of dwarfdom is, is his family. It would not be, really, uh, not be... 
He faltered into silence, and then some other part of his brain took over. He looked up, brightly. Some coffee, perhaps. I shall fetch some. Vimes opened his mouth to say no, but didn't. Dwarfs made good coffee, and there was a smell of it wafting from the next room. Besides, the nervousness radiating off Helmclever suggested he'd been drinking a lot of it today. No harm in encouraging him to have more. It was something he told his officers. People got worried around coppers if the officer knew his stuff, and jittery people gave too much 